Welcome to The Journal Dotties, The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, in a special departure, what did The Explainer explain in 2019? The 24-hour news cycle can be daunting, and keeping up with it can feel not only time-consuming, but also a bit tiresome. There are so many hot takes, so many ill-informed debates. The Explainer was launched by us here at The Journal with optimism that it could provide our users with the context, analysis and facts they wanted and needed about big news stories. The news without the noise. And it has worked. We're almost 50 episodes in and you have listened in your thousands, giving us positive reviews and ratings. We were named in Apple's best listens for the year, so thank you very much for that. We have covered everything from Lisa Smith to Brexit. And yes, there has been a lot of Brexit. Um, Everything from Prince Andrew to how the Healy Rays have never lost an election. And as this is our first Christmas, it's our first time to reflect fully and look back at our episode list. And it kind of is a guide to 2019. Christine Bowen, our executive producer, uh, you're in studio with us today. And from the outset, was that what you were hoping for from the year that you went into each week to pick a topic that like by the end of the year will be telling the story of 2019? Yeah, I think that definitely was something we would have kind of hoped for when we started um, all the way back in March. Probably the hardest thing that we've had to do every week um, is picking the topics because It might seem that it's something, it can be quite straightforward. We're trying to find what the biggest story of the week is. But what we found over the episodes is that it's actually a lot more subtle. It's not necessarily the biggest story. It's more likely the ones that people are talking about or the ones that people need to know more about, but maybe they don't quite realise they need to know more about. Like the Backstop episode, which I think was a really good example of it. Um, So I think that for us, we know that an episode has worked well if it's something that people can kind of go, oh, that's that's the thing I can talk about in the pub with my friends or that's the thing that people are talking about on Twitter or asking questions about. And hopefully, hopefully we provide uh, some of the answers for that. Yeah, so we're going to look back at some of our best bits um, for the end of the year. So we're joined in studio by all of our producers. So this is a lovely treat. Uh, Aoife Barry, our producer, is here. Uh, Nikki Ryan, our assistant producer, and also the man who makes us all sound as great as we do. And Christine Bowen, as you've just heard, our executive producer. Christine, I'm going to go back to you for your one of where we're all going to pick two today. So what is your first best bit of The Explainer 2019? So the way that I chose my episodes was my favourite ones are always the ones where it's something that I think I know about. And then I hear the episode and I go, oh, I didn't know as much as I thought I did about that. So the first one that I've chosen is The Backstop, um, which was one that I think we kind of had in kind of our back pocket for quite a while and um, for a few months where we kept saying, maybe we should do it this week. Maybe it's time for us to cover The Backstop this week um, and kept putting it off in favour of other big stories. And then it came to um, doing this episode and we realised actually now is the time to do this and um, we need to stop <laughs> putting it off. This is the moment when people really, really need to know um, what the backstop is about. It ended up being one of our most popular episodes of the year, and um, which is great, a testament, I think, to um, Gronini A, our reporter, and Shona Murray of Euro News. Um, but I always think of the backstop as being something that, like, it reminds me of the bank bailout in 2010 or 2011 or or Sarah Palin or one of these news stories where at the time you know so much about it in, like, granular detail or, or it becomes, it kind of consumes so much oxygen or people care so much about it. And then maybe five years' time, you kind of go, hang on, what was what was the bailout again? Or what was the name of John McCain's vice president candidate? And or it's one of those things where years later you're like, oh my God, remember that? Remember, remember how crazy that was? 
yeah, yeah. I, and I, I think Remember that those we used to care about important. bond auctions <laughs> oh my god now nobody cares <laughs> no, I'm joking and I think, but, it, I think as well like it's you know the fact that it was such a big thing for us this year but like people really wanted to know what the hell is the backstop it was yeah. really proof for us I think on the podcast that it's such a function of explaining this thing that people see mentioned all the time in the news so the word is out there but people might have been reading stuff and being like but what does it actually mean yeah you've lost me along the way yeah. I actually you know take it back a second I need to know what are the implications of this like what does this actually mean sure we even lost some UK politicians along the way Christine what would they have heard on this podcast well we'll hear our reporter Gronya Nier talking about um, a road trip that she went on along the border with Nikki Ryan who's here in studio today um, and just talking about the, how the issue of the troubles was present and was a, a constant that was there in the discussion around the backstop and how it's still such a huge issue for the people in Northern Ireland when we travelled along the border uh, as part of the Brexit road trip myself and Nikki Ryan we heard again and again that when the border first went up on the island of Ireland, it was just a customs check borders. There were no police officers or heavy duty kind of military force there. But what happened was that was a symbol of division on the island of Ireland. It was a symbol that the north was different from the rest of Ireland and that became a target for dissidents. So when people say that in Canada and Switzerland, you know, we will have a frictionless as possible border, that doesn't really work because this is what we had before and it escalated. You had civil servants at post checking animal licenses and they became targeted and attacked. And then you put a police presence there to protect those civil servants. And then that escalated again to a military force with uh, armed kind of vehicles and that kind of thing and checking people's cars as they traveled through the border. That's what happened. So it's not going to be as straightforward as let's just put customs checks on the border to check animal licenses. So from the Brexit backstop, Nikki, what was your choice of the year? So my first pick is an episode from September where we covered the topic of chemsex, um, which is something that our reporter Orla Ryan has pretty much been leading the coverage of in Ireland. Um, and it's not something that's easy to cover. It has to be done in a very careful manner, very considered manner. I think that was kind of very much at the forefront of our minds when we were working on this episode. So for those who are unaware, who haven't listened to the episode, um, Chemsex is the use of drugs to enhance sexual activity. It's often associated with men who have sex with men. But I mean, this is a very simplistic explanation of something which is actually very nuanced, as in there's a whole range of different types of people from different walks of life who would take part in chemsex. And they would probably all have their own reasons for doing it. So there's a lot there and it's not something we can really get into in this um, best of show. But our question for that episode was looking at why chemsex was in the headlines recently. And it's mostly down to one drug known as G. It's often sold as a liquid that can be diluted, but it will also come in powder form. It's very cheap, very easy to get, very potent, as in the difference between a your normal high from it and an overdose could be as little as 0.5 milliliters. It's also very addictive. And the big issue here is that people might take it all weekend for a chemsex party and then maybe a little bit more to help with the calm down and then maybe a little bit more to help ease them back into the working week. And through this way, they can very easily slip into addiction. Yeah, the thing about chemsex is it feels like a really underreported story. Like Orla's reporting is so good in it because you don't, you're not reading about it anywhere else. And it's also really nuanced. And I thought the guests that we had in gave a really good kind of overview of a topic that it could be quite easy to fall into stereotype around and I thought that that's what I really learned about it that you can't just make these kind of snap judgments about these topics because they sound like really kind of taboo things that there's a lot more going on there and that like people's lives are really being affected mm. by it 
So that's what I really got out of that episode. Um, yeah, it's quite easy to kind of verge into being sensationalist with this topic. So it is worth listening back to the full podcast because it is very carefully considered. And in this next clip, we have the two experts who joined us. That's Dr. Kyron Santal and also Graeme Ryle. They're both experts in this area in Ireland and they explain just how easy the drug is to get, but also just how easy it is to overdose on it. It's very, very easy to order a litre, which will cost in and around 100, 120 euros um, from a number of stockists across Europe, across the UK. When that arrives, which will be within two to three days, that thousand millilitres you have, you can turn that into a thousand euros. Even though you've bought the litre for in and around 100 euros, if you were selling that on, at a euro a mil, well, there's a thousand euros, right? And like people will joke to me like prior to say long weekends because there's an extra day off for people or uh, festivals that oh they're going to be busy, you know, in the stockists across Europe. It, it is quite easy to overdose on GHB and that's because the strengths can vary from batch to batch. Um, it can be diluted with water if it's being sold to someone. Um, so you don't know what the concentration is. And the dose measured is in very small quantities. So one milliliter can give you a euphoric kind of feeling. 1.5 milliliters can cause you to sleep. And two milliliters would be an overdose where you go under or pass out, lose consciousness for about two or three hours. And just to mention one of the things about that episode as well is that I think more people knew where to go and get more information and more help um, about things that were going on in their lives, which is also an, an amazing consequence of, of having those kind of discussions. Uh, Aoife, moving on to you, one of your best bits of 2019, please. Yeah, so myself and Christine worked on this particular episode and it's not that we're bigging up our work necessarily, but I think we learned a lot um, while making this episode. I mean, I learned a lot about how US abortion law works and that's because it was the episode episode which is called why are so many US states tightening abortion laws right now and that was that came out in May of this year and that's because we were seeing stories coming from the US about abortion laws or an attempt to put stricter abortion laws in place in states like Georgia and Alabama and so because of that the question was were we going to see Roe versus Wade rolled back? Now, Roe, Roe versus Wade is a landmark decision or was a landmark decision by the US Supreme Court, which basically confirmed the legality of a woman's right to an abortion under the US Constitution. Though, as the explainer kind of went into, it didn't mean that abortion laws are the same throughout the 50 states of America. So it is a complicated issue. And I suppose it's important, as we found out in making the explainer to a lot of people, that Roe versus Wade is in place in the US. And, you know, there are different laws in different states but it's kind of complicated because you've got federal law and then you've got state law so you can live in one place in America where there are different abortion laws to you know the state right next door to you so there's a lot of different issues going on and then we also looked at this idea of the fetal heartbeat bills which is the integral part really of the, of this story we were mainly discussing those in that episode and these bills are being proposed by pro-life advocates and so essentially we looked at why they want to see these bills actually being challenged so why they want to see them to go all the way to the Supreme Court because then that could possibly lead to an attempt to Roe versus Wade being overturned. So it's really interesting because these bills, as you'll hear in the episode, are really fringe bills. They're not kind of mainstream things. It's usually very fringe advocates that are actually advocating for them. Um, but now they're becoming quite mainstream. 
So I feel like I already got a better sense of what was going on there and the kind of abortion battle, as people are calling it in the US, but also a sense of the legal system and the complications that can arise there. And so that's why I've chosen this clip, which is from Larry Donnelly. Now, people will know his name because he's a columnist for the journal.ie and a favourite of The Explainer. And Larry was a guest on the show that week and he explained in this clip the differences between the different states and why you will have different state laws in America, depending on the state you're in. So you might want to take a few notes on that. But I think going back and listening to the podcast gives a good overview of this kind of situation with abortion in the US. So this is Larry Donnelly explaining. At one level, the, the federal government, that is through the Congress, has the power to make law. And uh, where there is a conflict between federal and state law, uh, federal law does preempt, that is, overrule state law. Uh, but the, the reality is that there's a limited area where the two uh, spheres are competing. Uh, the reality is that most of the, I suppose, the laws that govern everyday life for the people of the United States uh, are made at the state level. So most laws really are down to uh, the individual states to make themselves. So you have 50 different, uh, I suppose, regimes. Each state, uh, even though they're part of the United States, uh, each state is a sovereign and has the authority to govern uh, the lives of their own citizens in virtually every sphere. Just listening to that clip of Larry there, Aoife, you're so right about how one topic on the explainer can actually give you knowledge that's so interchangeable with lots of other things that are happening. Like, you know, I learned a lot about political tactics. It's not just about the issue. It's about the tactics that are can inform a lot of different uh, fights that are happening around the world. Especially in the run up to the 2020 election as well, when it's going to be so um, important and current. Yeah. So, Christine, back to you. Uh, We're all getting two picks uh, because we couldn't decide because we love so many of our episodes. Uh, What was your second pick of 2019? Um, So my next one was about um, I was trying to find something thing that we had covered from a different perspective and so I was thinking about how we politics is often in Ireland is often covered from Dublin as listeners will, will probably be aware of so we wanted to um, look at politics outside of Dublin so we did one episode looking at the, the Healy Rays and about why they're so successful as a I think we can call them a dynasty now I think it's fair to Absolutely. say at this stage right I think it suits the Healy Rays called <laughs> dynasty they it like seems it. appropriate <laughs> yeah. so we had Jerry O'Regan in who's a former editor of the Irish Independent and who's from Kerry and we had Ronan Duffy our reporter too and what they did was they traced the history of the Healy Ray dynasty so they started with Jackie Healy Ray and kind of his rise to power in Kerry. Um, and then they looked at how that has spread to his sons and to his family, why they're so popular right now and then and the future generations. But the bits in particular that I loved were kind of the, I suppose, the more nuanced parts where I was talking about how is it that what the Healy Rays do is any different to what people like, say, Tony Gregory did for Dublin in the 1980s. Um, when listeners might remember, he secured a deal for his constituency in the north inner city, um, which meant that he would support Charlie Hawhey's government in return for a package of things for his constituents. And so there was a really good discussion in studio about like, I mean, is this a bad thing? I mean, is this kind of clientelism something that we want to avoid in Irish politics? Is it, is it an inherent part of Irish politics? Um, and is it good or bad? I mean, would the people of, what would their constituents say about um, having the Healy Rays represent them? I imagine that they're quite happy with having these uh, people fighting for them in the Dáil. Um, but I like this episode. I thought it was a really good way of, you know, looking at something that we see in Irish politics every day and going a bit deeper and explaining it a little bit more. Well, any time I go there, any time you mention to anybody, you know, I mean, from Dublin, you know, their success has been phenomenal. And some of their statements on various issues from a metropolitan point of view, you know, we might disagree with. But the one thing that everybody acknowledges and says, whether they're either on their side or with the opposition, is their extraordinary capacity for work uh, in the sense of political work. And that they also have as we know, and being involved, uh, you know, are involved in various businesses, you know, from 
property, to farming, to plant hire, to owning a pub and a shop, etc. But certainly they are, if, if, if you like, the classic rural political machine, if you like, where nobody dies without a Healy Ray send-off. Obviously, this current generation compared to Jackie growing up in, you know, the 1950s are, you know, a different world altogether. So, you know, if they, they just need to be watchful. Uh, you know, a classic case in point is the Kennedys. You know, you'd President Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy and all those, and then you're the driving patriarch, old Joe Kennedy. But the current generation of Kennedys have faded away. Nothing. And just, just to touch on that, you know, when we talk about branding, you know, perhaps what their most famous brand and what they push more is the fact that they don't lose, like the fact that they win all the time and the fact that they get mm. things done. And that's something that is very difficult to maintain. You, you, you mentioned the 22 odd consecutive elections they've won. But they also talked this up themselves. And I was kind of having a look at some of the comments of, you know, the different generations of the Healy Rays and disperse this out. There was a famous uh, time in 2007 after Jackie Healy Ray won his election. He gave this speech in the back of a truck in Ken Mayer. Michael Healy Ray spoke at the time and said, nobody, nobody, nobody will ever beat us. Now, last week, <laughs> Jackie Healy Ray Jr. made a similar post on his Facebook page. I took a look at it and it said, the person who thinks they can take this seat off me, I honestly believe that person hasn't been born yet. So the new fellow. <laughs> Jackie, Jackie Jr. is what, 24 years old? 24 years old. <laughs> now, definitely on message, but it certainly, you know, puts a lot of pressure on you. Yeah, one of the that was one of my favorite ones to actually present. It was like pressing play on two people and just letting them have a really great discussion about such an interesting family. Um, but they've never lost an election. Like it's amazing. <laughs> like imagine if you were a political party, you just want to hire all of them and pay them as much money as you possibly. It definitely yeah. feels like it should be bottled and, and sold. Yeah, <laughs> like and that yeah, kind of ability. It's so unique, isn't it? Like there's just something so distinct and unique about the Healy Rays. So it's really it was really illuminating looking at them specifically, like removing them from the the rest of the kind of political machine and seeing how they do things. Things. Yeah, it was just like very. Because there's a system as well. There's a process. There's a definitely. It's not know, an accident. Like they're not just like you know, toddling around Kerry doing like they are. You know, they're very specific, hardworking people. Yeah. And you know, as we got a sense of the different things they do to to get the work done, it's very intriguing. Nikki. Your second choice, please. So my second choice is something which I absolutely love. I absolutely loved this topic. Um, it was about Newgrange and how we keep making discoveries around Newgrange. So like, you know, Newgrange is one of our most famous monuments in Ireland. It's older than the pyramids and it has been studied in depth for so long. So how in the name of God are we actually still making discoveries around it? This was actually uh, a genuine question that yeah. I had in, in the office, <laughs> yeah. not even talking about the explainer because it was one, a lot of the stuff that comes up, it's in the news, so we know a lot about it. This was one that I had no clue. I'm like, honestly, lads, how are they still finding these things? <laughs> and Nicky was ready to jump in. I was ready. <laughs> I was he was ready. <laughs> Um, so there's not really one answer to this. Um, in the episode we looked at, obviously there's been a lot in the past couple of years. We've had... Um, a lot of crop marks which were revealed during the droughts. Um, and then we also had some other discoveries in the wider um, Boyne Valley complex, such as the passage tomb that was discovered underneath Dowd Hall. Um, but one thing that struck me during this episode was um, an answer given by our three guests. They were editor of Archaeology Ireland, Dr. Sharon Green, Dr. Jessica Smith of UCD's School of Archaeology, and also our very own Susan Daly, who at the time was editor of the Journal.ie, and now she has moved into the position of managing editor of Journal Media. Um, but they kind of talked through the thought process behind why we simply haven't dug up half the Irish countryside to see what lies underneath. I mean, 
If I look out my back window at my house in Wexford, I can see the remains of a moated site and this other kind of vaguely circular mound, which is very interesting. Um, and there's nothing that I would love more than for a team of trained archaeologists to come in and dig it all up just to see what we might find there. But you know, we have to control ourselves and not do that. Um, so it's fascinating to hear the kind of the different considerations that happen when you are looking at excavating a site or when there are there is a potential to find something, for example, around Newgrange. Actually, a good example of that is is the Woodstown Viking site. So that was um, proposed by Pass Around Waterford City. Um, they had the number of routes, as Sharon's just mentioned. Um, and in the testing phase, so when they're doing the test trenching, looking for archaeology, potential archaeology, they were encountering entering an awful lot of Viking Age remains. And it was decided that actually the site, the proposed route looks like we are going to hit some big Viking Age site here. They thought it was a better idea to reroute the motorway slightly. So in that case, it's that balance of um, protection of what's there, but also economic considerations. So the, the amount of money needed to fully resolve that site, so to dig it, to do all the post-excavation analyses, was probably more than the cost of just, just shifting the, the a little way. Yeah. So the, so it's it's basically, it is a balancing act of all these considerations mm-hmm. and archaeology is just part of that decision-making process. Yeah, Susan, one of the things I'm still a little bit unclear of is, is, is digging up sites a good thing from an archaeological point of view or is it something that we should avoid doing if possible? Well, I mean, if you expose it to air and, you know, to, to the general elements, then you're immediately putting something at risk that has survived for a long time. And as far as, I mean, you're asking, is, is excavation a good thing? I mean, yes, excavation as a means of getting information from a site is a wonderful thing, but something all archaeologists are very, very conscious of, because it's drilled into us from day one, I think, (laughs) is that it's also a just completely destructive process. You don't get to re-excavate a site. Once you've excavated, you have a huge responsibility during that process to record everything that you do, because no one else is going to go back and correct what you've done if you do it wrong or if you forget to record something. Um, and that, I suppose, answers the question we were talking about before about, you know, why, why aren't all these sites getting excavated? You know, surely the archaeologists have found something, so they want to get in and dig it up and find everything they want to find. But we're, we're very conscious of this, that it's a destructive thing. And to hark back to what I was saying earlier again, methods are always improving. There's always new, wa- new ways of finding information from what you take out of the ground. Um, and I suppose that you can compare the, the megalithic sites we're talking about, you know, these stone monuments. You can excavate a stone monument like Newgrange and still be left with a structure and something to look at and take the information from the soils and bones or whatever you find, you'd find in these megalithic uh, structures. But an awful lot of sites in this country are not megalithic. You know, you're left with post holes and trenches and ditches that you can take soil out of and you might get soil samples and environmental information as well as artefacts. But once you've excavated them, they're gone. So Nicky did not dig up his garden? No, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. I would absolutely love to, but I'm very much aware that that is illegal <laughs> and that you are not allowed to do that. So I'm not doing that. Don't worry. This will be very important when the court case happens. Yes, very important. <laughs> no metal detecting allowed uh, this Christmas. <laughs> so we've covered Brexit, abortion, chemsex, Newgrange, the Healy Rays. We really, as I said at the start, what we cover is 
incredibly varied. Aoife, what's, what are you going to throw into the mix next? So I'm going to throw antibiotic resistance into the mix. Um, this was a really recent episode that we did. And Maria Delaney, reporter from Noteworthy, was on the podcast to talk about it. And, you know, we got the absolute perfect person to talk about it because her background is in science reporting and she's so knowledgeable on it. But crucially, explained it so clearly. I don't think I'd ever really understood the kind of concept of bacteria and viruses properly until like she actually she's liked so it. She's so passionate about Bacteria. So passionate about it. She was great. Um, so essentially antibiotic resistance, like we know we have to finish our antibiotic course. We're told that we're told, you know, take all the penicillin or whatever. And we know that there's this thing called antibiotic resistance. But I think for a lot of us, it's like, why do we have to finish the course? And how does that tie into antibiotic resistance? And so she really explained all about that. And what I was really struck by was her thoughts on the impact of all of this on the healthcare system in Ireland. And in particular, stuff like isolation beds and things like this, because there's uh, two major strains strains of um, antibiotic resistant bacteria that, you know, are kind of active in Ireland that you do have to be worried about. And she explains in this clip about the impact of everything that's going on around antibiotic resistance on the healthcare system and obviously on patients too. It's changed medical practice in recent years. Like patients are screened on admission for um, things like MRSA and CP. Well, they should be screened. They're not always screened. And um, they're isolated or cohorted, which means they're put with people with the same bug. Um, and that also has impacts on the hospital because they might have empty beds they can't use because someone with those bugs is in that room. So it has impacts on ward numbers and trolley numbers. Um, and hospital staff obviously use gowns and gloves and other techniques to limit the spread. Um, but one, one impact is um, in Ireland, we have a complete lack of isolation beds, especially in public hospitals. So this is having a big impact and like say in September, the latest report for CPE, 10 patients weren't isolated properly, which means they were at actual risk of spreading CPE to other patients. And that's because of lack of infrastructure and lack of facilities. So those are the kind of things we need to put in place to prevent um, kind of further spread. Could I be walking around with CPE or MRSA and be totally well and not know about it? Yeah, most people with superbugs actually don't have any symptoms. And it's only if you um, are kind of sick or vulnerable or those kind of things, or maybe if you've had a procedure or an operation that you can maybe get an infection that goes into your blood or something like that. And I suppose one of the really scary things about CPE is that 50% of people who get a blood stream infection, which is septicemia, actually die of that infection. So that's one of the reasons why it's it's so scary. Uh, that episode was one I think that probably people maybe felt guilty about afterwards because like I think we've all definitely not taken a full course of antibiotics or asked what? the doctor for an antibiotic when we don't need it. What? I, Sinead, what? Yeah. Anyway, I, mean, I, still, I still sound sick and this is weeks later That's and I didn't yeah. take an antibiotic. Oh, have you actually? Not finished an antibiotic? No, have you actually asked for antibiotics when you knew you didn't need them? No, I haven't. Okay. okay. <laughs> At least it's that. theoretical. Yeah. Okay. It's the one thing okay. you won't be doing after listening to that episode of The Explainer, <laughs> not finishing your antibiotics or going in with the flu and asking for antibiotic. So we've missed one person at this table. Sinead, uh, you haven't told us yet. What were your favourite bits? Um... Not in any particular order, but my first one was we've done a few crossover episodes with the 42, our sister sports site, um, and one that has kind of remained in the news. And we did it back in April after kind of the initial flurry about John Delaney. So we had asked why John Delaney was in the news so often. I think people who follow Irish football are really familiar with why John Delaney is so often in the news and why he's a bit of a controversial character and why he's always been a colourful character. Um, but I guess for other people, it might have come as, you know, out of 
left field a little bit. And we were in with Sean Murray, our reporter, and Niall Kelly, the deputy editor from the 42. And we actually went right the way back to when John Delaney initially kind of got a foot into Irish football. And it was because of his father and something that has infamously been called the Night of the Long Knives. So it's a nice bit of history to round out the decades of John Delaney and the FAI. Well, in order to answer that, I think the best thing to do is to go back to the mid-1990s. And in particular, it's worth noting that John Delaney comes, there's a history of football administration in the family. His father, Joe, was the chairman of Waterford United, and he went on to be the honorary treasurer of the FAI. And people may remember Joe Delaney as one of the central figures in what became known as the Marion Gate Scandal in the 1990s. And to briefly sum up what the Marion Gate Scandal was. Please do. It was to do with the FAI's policy for buying tickets for the 1990 World Cup and the 1994 World Cup. And it emerged subsequently that in order to get the most tickets possible for Ireland fans, they'd actually been dealing with a ticket tout. Sum of £200,000 had gone missing. This ticket tout had essentially left them high and dry without any tickets. Joe Delaney, as the honorary treasurer, had stepped in and made up some of that shortfall, £110,000 out of his own pocket. And it all came to a head in 1996 in what was known as the Night of the Long Knives, where the resignations of Joe Delaney and another a number of other board members were forced. On that night in the Westbury Hotel, sitting there, 27-year-old John Delaney, who was only starting out in his own career as a football administrator, but was getting a very quick sense for the drama that can engulf football, politics and governance. Yeah, so even as someone who myself, I would count myself as a, you know, big sports person, someone who commentates on on various sporting stories. And even during that episode, there were bits that I really enjoyed, like Sean and Niall reminded me that Bobby Robson was involved in the Irish football setup at one point. And Christina's just nodding here going, oh, yeah. <laughs> I had completely forgotten that. Exactly. I forgot it when we recorded the podcast and I forgot it again now. Yeah. So it's those podcasts with those little gems are my absolute favourite. And one more. Um I had to pick a Brexit one because we have done a lot of Brexit topics and we started with a Brexit topic and it was one that people stopped me and said, oh, so interesting the way. And I thought, oh, the explainer is going to work. And this they had found out these facts from Gronje, our Brexit uh, reporter, um, who had gone out and looked at what a no deal Brexit could do for our access to food. Um, you know, we hear, hear a lot about um trade and delays at ports and all of that but like what does that actually mean for us and I had asked her we were about a year on from bread Mageddon um, when we all ran out of bread because of one of the storms and I asked her what kind of impact Brexit could have on food stuff like bread. When we think about uh, how say Coca-Cola makes a sugary product they, pa- they package um, their product here in bottles. So that's another aspect there. So they're paying not only an increase on whatever ingredients, but actually the way they package their product as well could go up by 50%. Um, so that's another headache for them. And obviously, if a glass bottle increases by 50%, that's going to affect the drinks industry as well. So all the luxuries are getting hit because yeah, of Brexit. Okay. It's like so, the budget. Yeah, so like you're saying, Cadbury. So say, okay, another big Irish company, Guinness, like obviously it's Diageo, but say the, the Guinness which is made here, will that change? Will we see a price of a pint go up? And I didn't realise how all island the supply chain or how 
the, the Guinness supply chain worked. So basically it's, it's brewed in St. James's Gate and uh, trucks then transport the stout up to Belfast. It's packaged there. And then if it's exported, it goes back down across the border to Dublin port. So again, we're talking about that all island economy. There's a lot of disrupt. It's very liable for disruption there. And if even if there is no um, hard border, will it need like a certificate to cross the border with all yeah, this Yeah, and we've seen all green card insurance and all that. Exactly. Kind of so we, we, we don't know, but Despite that, Diageo have been very um, certain and to emphasise they're not going to change their supply chain um, because of Brexit. And there was an annual report out in December where they said that. That being said, they did say to a UK committee that they would be impacted by it somewhat. And that although they're, you know, quite a big company, so they're well kind of able to prepare themselves or to handle yeah, whatever they're hit with. Yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about Diageo. Yeah, yeah. Not the grand. Um, despite that, though, they're not looking forward to it either and they know that they'll have to do something to prepare for it, but they don't know what yet. So maybe price increases is something they're, lo- they're looking at, but it de- I'd say it depends on the, the scale of how they're hit. Okay, we have to get very serious now because around this time last year, so we've just passed the anniversary of Breadmageddon. We had a bit of snow, maybe a lot of snow, and we were knocking the heads off each other to get to a half pan of Brennan's bread on the shop shelf. What will happen on the 29th of March? I would say that we will be fine for bread, but it might be a little bit more expensive. Phew. Oh, God. <laughs> you, you led with the good news. And, so you're going to have to return all that, all, all that bread that you've been stockpiling <laughs> on, on Sinead. Um, so basically, it's, uh, bread could see an increase of 10 to 15 percent. Uh, a representative for bread makers in Ireland have said. And Why? That's, that is because we import a massive amount of our flour. 95% of the flour uh, that is used in Ireland is imported from the UK. Flour? Yeah, exactly. And that's Why? because we've only got three mills and two of them are in, in Northern Ireland. And there's one in Port Arlington. So that is the only mill in the island of Ireland. Because of that, we need to import our flour. But because of Brexit... That's another barrier. That's another tariff. That's another expense, basically. So there'll be a hundred and seventy-five euro tariff or extra that bread makers will have to pay per ton of flour that they import, and that is going to impact. If that happens in a no-deal Brexit, that is going to impact the price of bread. It was nice to start with a Brexit episode and to finish with a Brexit episode, but also give you a flavour of everything else that happens on the podcast. This was episode 44, so there is a lot in the back catalogue there to go back to, and hopefully some of this has piqued your interest. Um, We want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners, um, because we wouldn't be able to make this every week unless you kept coming along, um, giving us ratings, giving us reviews. If you haven't done that, it is the best and single most important thing you can do to help support us continue to put these out every week or more often if you would like that let us know if there's something you would like explain to us again let us know get in touch with christine or Eva or nikki and um, all of their email addresses are available on the journal and um, thank you and have a lovely christmas happy new year and see you in 2020 bye thank you bye thanks <laughs>